Well, good evening. If you have your Bibles, we're in Isaiah chapter 14 tonight. If you need a Bible, Stephen's up and he's got four Bibles in his hands. Oh, see, three. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and he'll bring them right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Isaiah chapter 14. have a word of prayer before we begin. Father, we thank you for this time tonight, Lord, as we uh, just can gather together in this place and just cry out to you, Lord, in worship and song, Lord, and we do um, love you so much. And we thank you for this opportunity to be here this evening, Lord, and to worship you and, Lord, to study your word. And we pray, Father, that Lord, our hearts would be attentive, Lord, that it speak to our hearts, Lord, what you'd have us to, to hear tonight, Lord God, that you'd be glorified above all, Lord. We thank you for this time tonight. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Isaiah chapter 14, I think we'll do 14 and 15 tonight. Isaiah 14 is a continuation of the burden of Babylon that begun in chapter 13, the, the, the burden of Babylon, or what we looked at last time, the judgment against Babylon. Now, Isaiah, over the next 10 chapters, is going to speak many burdens against many different nations that have come against Israel and Judah. Babylon was the first of several nations upon which judgment, the judgment of God was to fall. And as we pointed out last week, God is sovereign. He is able to call an army. He desires to accomplish any task that he assigns. And that God has in the past used ungodly nations before to unwittingly accomplish his plans. You know, I, and I shared this last time, it's like the old cartoon with the fish. You know, you got the fish and it's got even the smaller fish and this bigger fish comes along and eats the other fish. And, and, and we see this happening here. We know that God has used Babylon and all its wickedness to, to conquer Judah and, and take her into captivity, but that doesn't let Babylon off the hook. We saw last time together that God called the Medes, another wicked nation, a, a bigger fish, to take care of Babylon. In fact, verse 17 of chapter 13 said, the Lord says, Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them. And he did. We know historically that Babylon was destroyed by the Medo-Persians in 539 B.C. But as we pointed out last week, there is a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. Dual prophecies found in the book of Isaiah. A literal Babylon that was destroyed in 539 B.C. and a future Babylon, a commercial and a religious system found uh, that would be destroyed. You can read uh, about it in Revelation 18 and 19, but just let me read Revelation 18, verses 2 and 3. It's there that an angel, it says, cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great has fallen, is fallen and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. Revelation 18, verses 2 and 3. So, again, we know there was a near fulfillment when Isaiah prophesied, wrote of this, and a far fulfillment going on from, found in the book of Isaiah. Now, we know also that at the end of the Babylonian captivity, the Jews were able to return to their land. We also know at the end of the Great Tribulation period, the completed Jews, those who recognize Jesus as Messiah, Yeshua, Amashiach, will return to their land as well and enter into that 1,000-year reign of Christ, the millennial reign of Christ, 
uh, on, on the earth. It's at that time, now look at verse 1 that we read. For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will still choose Israel and settle them in their own land. The strangers will be joined with them and they will cling to the house of Jacob. So when the Lord returns to rule and reign, he will gather the Jews and place them in this promised land. They will no longer be oppressed people. In fact, they will be the most favored people of all. Look at verse 2. The people will take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them for servants and maids in the lands of the Lord. They will take them captive, whose captives they were, and rule over their oppressors. I mean, here's this great role reversal. Instead of their miserable state of captivity with the Babylonians, the Jews would again, once again, be gathered into the land. But we see the future fulfillment of this during the millennial reign of Christ. Instead of the miserable attacks, attacks rather, by the nations of the world under the leadership of the Antichrist, the Jews would once again be gathered into their land, and the Jews who by then will all recognize again Jesus as Messiah will be the rulers of those nations that once dominated them. Look at verse 3. It says, And it shall come to pass in that day the Lord give you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and the hard bondage in which you were made to serve. Again, the future earthly kingdom of Messiah is in view here. At that time, we read in verses 4 through 8, that you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, How the oppressed has ceased, the golden city ceased, the Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, he who struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he who ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and no one hinders. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth, break forth into singing. Indeed, the cypress trees rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were cut down, no woodsman has come up against us. When the Jews are put back into the position of power, instead of persecution, they will rejoice. They will bless the freedom from, they will bless the freedom from oppression by their neighboring nations. They will speak against the king of Babylon, who in the past had taken them captive and treated them uh, terribly. Now at first read, this sounds like a description of the king of Babylon that has fallen. But upon closer look, we see a glimpse into the spiritual realm. Yes, it's about the king of Babylon, but it's a dual prophecy pointing to someone else. Look at verse 9. Hell from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming. It stirs up the dead for you, all the chief ones of the earth, and has raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. They also speak and say to you, Have you also become as weak as we? Have you become like us? Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, and the sound of your stringed instruments, the maggot is spread under you, and worms cover you. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. Clearly we move away from the king of Babylon, to the power and force behind the king, none other than Lucifer himself. And as we read through the scriptures, we find that God often addresses the spiritual power that's behind the earthly realm. I think another example of this is in Ezekiel chapter 28, where the Lord speaks against the leader of Tyre, and it becomes apparent that he's addressing the king of Tyre, who is Satan himself. God always sees the devil behind evil on this earth. Or when Simon Peter tried to convince Jesus that going to the cross is not a good idea, Jesus responded by saying in Matthew 16, 23, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So in the same way, God is addressing the spiritual power behind the earthly king of Babylon, and it's none other than the devil himself. See, it's here in this section of Scripture that we get an answer to the question that is often asked about the devil. People ask, well, how could a God of love create someone as horrible and as wicked as the devil, as Satan. 
Let me point out that God did not create Satan as we know him today. Look at verse 12 again. We read God say, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Now that's a big difference between Satan, which means accuser, and Lucifer, which means shining star or son of the morning. Now there's some translations that say, How you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. As a result, you have those King James-only folks who accuse the modern translators of, of taking the devil out of the Bible. But in fact, the word Lucifer is not in the Hebrew. The word describing the devil is translated, O shining star, in verse 12. It's the Hebrew word, hey, lale, which means light bearer. But in Latin, it's the word Lucifer. So the King James Version uses Lucifer, which came from the Latin Vulgate. So now we know that Lucifer's name uh, once meant light bearer. But listen to this Ezekiel's description of him in Ezekiel 28, verses 12 through 14. Ezekiel writes, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the stardust, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes were prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You are on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stone. So we jump over to Ezekiel there in Ezekiel 28 that also has a description of Lucifer, of Satan. But something happened. There was a name change. Listen, when God created the world, Genesis 1.31 says he saw everything that he made and said that it was good. That's important. That means that the angelic world at that time did not have any fallen angels or any demons in it. But by the time Genesis 3 rolls around, it's no longer Lucifer, but it's Satan. And he's appearing in the form of a serpent tempting Eve to sin. Again, the word Satan means accuser. In fact, Revelation 12 calls him the accuser of the brethren. Therefore, between the events of Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, there's some kind of a rebellion in the angelic world with many angels turning against God and becoming evil. See, Lucifer, this beautiful creation of God, radiating all these lights of all these colors, this angel light became the prince of darkness. Perhaps that's why Paul warns us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, that, that Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light, because that's how, how he once looked. So this once high-ranking angel, possibly even an arch, archangel, changed dramatically. What happened? Well, look at verses 13 and 14. We read, Isaiah writes, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will also sit on the mount of the congregation, on the farthest side of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will be like the Most High. Lucifer developed an eye problem, something that glasses would not fix. Five times in these two verses we read the word I. Five things Lucifer coveted that only belong to God. He said, I will ascend into heaven. See, he coveted God's raised position in heaven. He said, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. He, he coveted God's ruling power. He said, I will also sit on the mount of, of the congregation. He coveted God's royal palace. He said, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. He coveted God's regal presence. And most of all, he said, I will be like the most high. He coveted God's rightful preeminence. And because of that, we read he fell from heaven. In fact, Jesus confirms this when Jesus writes in Luke ten eighteen, I beheld Satan fall as lightning to the earth. See, Lucifer thought that with all his wisdom, all his beauty, he could be 
equal with God himself, even greater than God. Now, as crazy as that sounds, each of us face the possibility of falling into that same trap. You know, when the devil deceived Eve, what did he tell her regarding the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? He said in Genesis 3, 5, And the day you eat of it, from your, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. I mean, that was the hook. The very thing that, that he used to trip Eve up was, you will be like God. Well, God doesn't want you to eat it because he's holding back from you. He's, he's afraid you're going to learn and, and, and you're going to be just like him. Listen, any one of these religions today that make you, that say that you will be like God, that put you in a God category, that say when you die, you and your wife will be as gods, you, you can own your own little planet. Be careful. That was the hook that, that, got, that, that got Satan. That was the hook that he used to get Eve. You know, these new religions that are out there, it's not, not really new, it's a new age religions. They'll tell you, you need to recognize the God in you. You know, there's this self-realization. You know, you've got to self-realize who you are. What they, what they do is they want you to realize about yourself that, that, that you are God. And it's tragic because so many people are, in our society, they're going down this path. And they're, they're, they're making themselves out to be God. Now, the interesting thing is that God is making us, as believers, again, in His image. When God first created man, He created man in the image and His likeness. But man, through disobedience and his desire to be like God, fell from that image of God. In fact, the Bible says, because of one man's sin, entered the world in death by sin, so that death passed into all men for all of sin. So if we want to know what God intended when he created, man, I, I can't look around at this world, because we can't find it. It doesn't exist in this world. All we see is fallen men. Man is filled with, man is filled with greed. Man is filled with hatred and controlled by his own desires and lusts. That isn't the way that God desired us to live. That isn't what God intended for, for man. But God reached down in the fallen state of man and the purpose of God in working in your life tonight to restore you to that which was lost through the fall. God wants to restore you back to His image. Not to be little gods, but to have the character of God in our lives. That's why we need to look to Jesus Christ. As we see His love, his joy, his peace, his compassion, his gentleness, his kindness, uh, you know, that just flowed through our Savior, and it still does. We are then changed, not by lifting ourselves up, but by humbling ourselves before the Lord and seeking to live for him and the walk of the Spirit. Just the opposite of what, what Lucifer did. He was puffed up with pride and thought he could be equal to God, even greater than God. And yet the Bible says to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God, and he will lift us up. He will do that transforming, transforming work in our, in our lives to make us more like Him. But not to make us gods. I think of the Apostle Paul and his warning he gave in 1 Timothy 3.6. He said not to place a novice in a position of leadership lest being puffed up with pride he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. You know that, that, that novice, you know, they tend to think if anything good happens, well it's through them. Because they're this skilled person or this clever. Well, I just, I worked this out. I did this all. But see, only someone who's walked with the Lord for a while, you realize, you know what? It's not me. It's not me at all. You know, anything good that happens, it's the Lord. It's all because of Him. Uh, you know, and not because of me. But, but when Paul says, uh, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. What was the condemnation as the devil? His pride. His pride. Again, we're, we're told in Ezekiel 28:17 about him. He says, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. 
I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. Ezekiel 28:17. So God's beautiful creation of Lucifer turned because of pride, became Satan the deceiver, the god of this age, the prince of this world, the ruler of darkness, the darkness, the, the, the father of lies, Apollyon, Abaddon, Beelzebub, wicked one, tempter, murderer, the enemy, a roaring lion, the list goes on and on. And we know this, when he fell, he didn't fall alone. He also took one-third of the angels with him. Now, how many is that? We don't know for certain. Those angels, I believe, they're the demons that, that are working for Satan, doing his bidding, if you will, on this planet. And what is Satan's goal? What is his demon's goal? It's to bring you down. See, Satan hates God. And, and he hates anything that God loves, so he hates you. And so now his demons are attempting to bring humanity down with him. And he does that in, in a number of different ways. He blinds them from the truth. Second Corinthians 4, 4 says, Whose mind the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So he blinds men from the truth. We know that Satan also holds men and, and women captive to do his will. Second Timothy 2, 26 tells us that the, 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 that the mankind is in the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. We know in the parable of the sower, he steals the word of God from men's hearts that, that are sowed there. We know he's at work, but here's the good news. Just as there is one-third of the angels that fell with Satan, there's two-thirds of the angels that are still on our side. And we know that there are millions of angels. More important than that, the Lord Jesus Christ himself is on our side. Scripture says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And let me tell you this, Jesus Christ defeated Satan soundly at the cross of Calvary. Now that doesn't mean that we're not still tempted. And let me say this, that not all evil and sin is from Satan. James 1, 14 and 15 tells us this, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. They so often want to say, well, well, the devil made me do it. I, I, I was just walking along and the devil made me do this. And you know, you know what? That's, you can't really use that. James tells us it's not so. We are drawn away by our own lust. Now, here's the thing. When we do sin, we do give Satan the stronghold into our lives. That's why we're told in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. When we're drawn away by our own lust and desires, we give place to the devil. We're allowing him to work in our lives. But again, the thing we need to remember is that Satan and his demons, they have nothing on us. Man, they're limited in knowledge. They're limited in strength. They're limited in geography. They're not omnipresent. They're not omnipotent. They're not omniscient. They don't know what we're thinking. They don't know the future. They don't even know our thoughts. But what they do know is what we do. Satan and his demons, they're, they're great observationalists. I don't even know if that's a word. They're great at observation. They studied mankind for some 6,000 years and they're highly intelligent beings. So they know what tempts you. They know what can bring you down. And they know what doesn't work. They listen to your conversations. They know what you struggle with and they'll do whatever they can to make you continue to struggle with that. And to bring certain people in the world that don't know Christ into the situations in your life and cause us to get our eyes off of the Lord and onto those temptations, those struggles, those people. Because they've been around a long time. They understand mankind. You know, it's like these psychics today that claim to be able to speak to your dead Uncle Harry or whoever. Listen, demons knew your Uncle Harry. 
So when he died, and you see these people go to some psychic, and they're claiming they're talking to Uncle Harry, you know that the demons knew all about Uncle Harry. Bible warns us to stay away from that stuff. My point is the enemy knows how to get to us. The enemy knows that there will come a time when his time is up as well. And until that time, he's going to try and bring everyone down with him that he can. That's why we're told in James chapter 4, verse 7, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Not he might flee from you. Not there's a good chance to flee from you. No, he will flee from you. But you've got to resist him. Resist the devil. Listen, doomsday is coming for the devil. Look at verse 15. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. I don't know about you, but I think a hearty amen is deserved right there. It's like, hey, man, get out of here. I mean, it's there that the devil will get what's coming to him. Look at verses 16 through 21 now. We read, those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners? All the kings of the nations, all of them sleep in glory, everyone in his own house, but you are cast out of your grave like an abominable branch, like the garment of those who are slain, thrust through with a sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a corpse trodden underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land and slain your people. The brood of evildoers shall never be named. Prepare slaughter for his children because of the iniquity of their fathers, lest they rise up and possess the land and fill the face of this world with cities. We see here that not only will the power of Satan be destroyed in hell, but, but he will also be ridiculed there. People will look at him and say, Are you the one that, 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 that made, uh, the, the, you know, made, made the, the earth to tremble? Are you the one that caused so many problems? He'll be nothing. Listen, we know that right now Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But to the Christian... Listen, he got his teeth knocked out at the cross at Calvary. Therefore, right now, all he can do is gum us to death, you know. And he does try, you know. He'll, 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 man, he'll intimidate and he'll threaten you, you know, and it's a slobber all over you, you know. But it's just, you know, it's just like, you know, gumming you, you know. And all we need to do is just resist him. Why? Because, again, he will flee from us. And why else? Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So, We've seen so far that Lucifer was cast down from earth, his first rebellion, and became Satan, the accuser of the brethren. But even then, he still had access to God's throne as we read in the book of Job. Remember in the book of Job, he would go and say, have you considered my servant Job? And, and, and Satan said, well, you know, let, me, you know, let me go down and let me add him. And, and so this conversation going on, he still had access. Yet during the great tribulation period, we know that he will no longer have access to God's throne. He will be thrown down out of heaven forever. Until the end of the Great Tribulation period, will he then be bound for 1,000 years? At the end of that 1,000 years, he will rebel one more time, and it's there in Revelation 20 that we read of his final destination. Let me read to you Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. It says this, Now when the 1,000 years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and 
ever. Another place for a hearty amen there as well. The devil's final destiny. Eternal fiery torment forever. Jesus described it in Matthew 25, 41 as an everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. What we notice here is, is Satan, Lucifer's beginning, his middle, his end. God has laid out completely for us. Satan thought he was in control. I will ascend. I will rise up. Listen, God will always have the last word. Now this brings us back to Isaiah 14 and verse 22. And God through Isaiah refocuses on the prophetic destruction of Babylon. Look at verse 22. He says, For I will rise up against them, says the Lord of hosts, and cut off from Babylon the name and remnant and offspring and posterity, says the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never met any Babylonian today. There's, there's no more Babylonians. You can't find a, you know, oh, my uncle so-and-so, he was a Babylonian. You know, we don't have it. They don't exist. God did what he said. He cut them off. The name, the son, the nephew, there's no more Babylonians. He goes on in verse 23. I'll also make it a possession for the porcupine and marshes of muddy water. I will sweep it with a broom of destruction, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so it shall come to pass. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. That I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains tread him underfoot. Then his yoke shall be removed from them, and his burden removed from their shoulders. This is the purpose that is purposed against the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched over, out over all the nations. So we've already kind of looked and touched on the destruction of Babylon last time. But, but I want you to notice two things in those verses I just read. Verse 24 and verse 27. Verse 24 says, The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so it shall come to pass. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. Then at verse 27, For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Two powerful, powerful verses here. God said in verse 24 that he has sworn. You know, men, you know, we, we, we may take an oath, put our hand on the Bible, and, you know, it's all I'm really true. But, but God, who has never spoken anything but truth, when God swears, man, it's something. I mean, how much more true can you get? And he says the purposes of God are set. They cannot be changed. The plan of God will be fulfilled. Babylon the devil will be destroyed. And yet, what a fantastic two verses these are to, to all of us. Why? Because for us, God's purposes are good, not evil. We know Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Philippians 1, 6, The he who has begun a good work in you shall complete it. Philippians two thirteen. For it is God who works in you both to will and to, good for, to do for His good pleasure. So he is determined he's going to complete that good work that he has started in you. And what he determines, it's going to come to pass. You have his word on it. Well, now we move to 28, kind of switch gears a little bit, verse 28. And we move to the next burden. Look at verse 28. This is the burden which came in the year that King Ahaz died. Do not rejoice, all of you of Philistia, because the rod that struck you is broken. So here the Lord says to Isaiah, do not rejoice. In other words, don't think you've got it made in the shade, you Philistines, because Assyria didn't destroy you. So apparently, you know, the Philistines are going, hey, we made it. Assyrians didn't take care of us. We're strong. We're good. Uh, he, you know, he, so he's saying, don't, don't you think you got that way? He says, look at that verse 29. For out of the serpent's roots will come forth a viper, 
and his offspring will be a fiery flying serpent. The firstborn of the poor will feed, and the needy will lie down in safety. I will kill your roots with famine, and it will slay your remnant. Well, O gate, cry, O city, all of you of Philistia are dissolved, for smoke will come from the north, and no one will be alone in his appointed times. Now we know according to Second Chronicles chapter 26 that Uzziah had subdued the Philistines who lived in the area southwest of Jerusalem. But because Ahaz was, was this weak king, the Philistines were actually able to take possession of some of the cities that surrounded part of the kingdom of Judah. Well, here Isaiah prophesies that one would ascend to the throne of Judah who would be more dangerous to the Philistines than Ahaz ever was. That man would be Hezekiah. I mean, that's like, da 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 man, this is, this is the hero here. And indeed, we're told in 2 Kings 18.8, Hezekiah subdued the Philistines as far as Gaza and his territory from watchtower to fortified city. Look at verse 32. What will they answer the messengers of the nation that the Lord has founded Zion and the poor of his people shall take refuge in it? So Hezekiah would give all the glory to God for the victory. See, God is, is going one by one and telling Isaiah the judgment that is coming to these wicked nations. But let's hit one more burden of judgment coming against the nations surrounding Judah and Israel. Look now at chapter 15. It's only nine verses. We'll read it all in one shot. The burden against Moab, because it is night, Ar of Moab is laid waste and destroyed. Because in the night, Ker of Moab is laid waste and destroyed. He has gone up to the temple of Dibon, to the high places to weep. Moab will well over Nebo and over Mediba. On, the heads of, will, on all their heads will be baldness and every beard cut off. In the streets they will clothe themselves with sackcloth. On the tops of their houses and in their streets everyone will well weeping bitterly. Hezbon and Alile will cry out. Their voice shall be heard as far as Jahaz. Therefore the armed soldiers of Moab will cry out. His life will be a burden sent to him. My heart will cry out from Moab. His fugitive shall flee to Zoar like a three-year-old heifer. For by the ascent of Luhith they will go up with weeping. For in the way of Horonium... They will raise up a cry of destruction, for the waters of Nimrin will be desolate, for the green grass is withered away. The grass fails, there is nothing green. Therefore, the abundance they have gained and what they have laid up, they will carry away to the brook of the willows. For the cry has gone all around the borders of Moab, it's well into Iglam, and it's well into Beer Elam, for the waters of Diamond will be full of blood, because I will bring more upon Demon lions than who escaped from Moab and on the remnant of the land. So what we see in chapter 15 is that after Philistia comes the burden against Moab or the judgment against Moab. Now even as God describes the judgment against Moab, yet Moab is to figure yet in the future. And we'll see that as we get into chapter 16, we'll find the place of Moab, which of course today is modern day Jordan. And we do see its place in the Great Tribulation. I think we're going to find some interesting things in, in chapter 16. Chapter 16, where you find the word Selah, or rock, or Petra. It's the rock city of Petra. is a place where the children of Israel will flee in the middle of the Great Tribulation as the Antichrist comes to Jerusalem and sets himself up there in the temple. And so this, this is coming up. And then as we, we read ahead, you know, we'll try and put our mind around this and what's going on. We'll break it down next Wednesday night together. And then we'll get to chapter 17 next week, and we're going to see the prophecy of, of the total destruction of Damascus. That's not happened yet. Certainly, the signs are there. The times are there. We're seeing the, the uprest and upheaval in Syria right now. And I believe that, that the Isaiah 17.1 is about to be fulfilled in the very near future. Then we get to chapter 18. Chapter 18, some commentators see the United States in chapter 18. And now, I think they're really reading more into it than, than what is there. 
But it's very interesting to see why they think that and why they, they're, they're seeing that. So, so uh, when we're done here, just go ahead and read chapters 16, 17, and 18. We'll break that apart next week, and uh, we'll, we'll call it quits for tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time tonight, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, of the promise that greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. And we know that the God of this world is Satan, seeking who may devour and destroy, Lord. But you are so much greater. And you have a plan and a purpose for our lives, Lord. And you have a plan and a purpose for this world. And I know that it's your desire. We know that it's your desire that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. So, Father, we pray that you'd give us a heart for the lost. Give us a heart to reach those that don't know you, Lord. Give us boldness. We pray that you'd uh, bind the enemies from slowing us down in our desire to see those that are to come to Christ. Lord, we pray that you would uh, remove the blinders of the enemy off of the loved ones that we have, Lord, that don't know you, that they may see their need for you and turn to you and come to faith in you. Lord, we thank you for this time tonight. We thank you for your word. Help us to stand fast upon it, Lord, to cling to you, to trust in you, to rely on you even greater. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.